Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight. Today, I am so excited to have author Candace Carabas on the show with us. Hi, Candace. Good morning, afternoon, Hi. depending on where you are. <laughs> Great to have you on the show. So just to give people a little bit of background about you, I'm going to read your author bio, and then we can get into the fun part, which is the interview questions. Okay. All right. Carabas writes from the Lincoln County, Missouri farm she shares with her husband and daughter. A scoliosis diagnosis at age 11 changed her life. A horse lover from a young age, she signed up for riding lessons and learned much more than posting trot. With quiet power, horses provided comfort and a sympathetic ear, never judging or poking fun at her cumbersome back brace. Those years, though often difficult, taught Candace the value of persistence, the healing power of believing in oneself, and how strength can be gained through kindness. Her stories are imbued with the irresistible wonder, mystery, and solace her equine friends have provided. Wow, Candace, that's a lovely bio. So it sounds like at a young age, you had some health issues that horses helped you heal and, and work through. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about that? Well, it was before, uh, you know, all kinds of equine therapy that are out there now and doing amazing things with, um, obviously, therapeutic riding and PTSD. Uh, it's just remarkable that science, I guess, is um, catching up with those of us who have been horse lovers our whole life, what we have always known um, about what it's like to be around horses. Yes. So, um, so, yeah, it was... Uh, <clears throat> kind of a lonely place sometimes. Uh, the brace, it's different now, but back then it was, it was a big ugly thing that couldn't be hidden and kids being kids, um, you know, can, they can make it a little hard and, mm -hmm. um, but it was always good at the barn. Absolutely. And that must have been a, a difficult thing as a, as, a, as a young woman to have to manage. You're already, you know, trying to figure out who you are in the world and, you know, at a young age feeling kind of awkward. years and middle school and all of that are, yeah, absolutely. And then add that on and, and, you know, it's like, I, I totally understand how horses can help you work through, particularly as a young woman, some of those difficult emotions and, and things that you're dealing with. I, I, my horse was my solace when uh, my parents were going through a divorce. So that yeah. was my happy place, you know, yep. the barn and the, and the horses. Obviously, that is sort of how you got into horses. Is, is that kind of your starting point with horses? Was, was, it was, was that? during that time that I got my first horse, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your furry friends, maybe your first horse. Uh, my first horse was a thoroughbred mare off the track. This was back on Long Island, and that was a pretty common uh, beast to find pretty easily because there's, you know, thoroughbred racing in New York. Um, and she had been bought by the place where I was taking lessons, and then I started taking lessons on her. So I knew her before my parents bought her for me and had her delivered to the house Christmas morning. Um, <laughs> 
that was so magical. Was wearing a green blanket trimmed with red. I can't imagine how, you know, this is way pre-internet, like where my mother had to go to, to find that blanket, but somehow she did. Um, <clears throat> and she was a dark gray. It, it looked, you know, really good on her. The Christmas uh, for the records. Like, you know, I can't, how do you top that, right? You can't top that. <laughs> That's exactly right. You're still, you're still involved with horses. You started as a young, young girl and now you have a whole bunch of furry friends in addition to your horses. The horse I have now, the Tricaner Thoroughbred Quarter Horse Cross. Don't know where any of the thoroughbred went because he's kind of a big, big, big bodied guy. I do have two goats, a llama and alpaca and two miniature donkeys at home. So. <laughs> a llama. How, yes. How did well, a llama come into your life? It started with the goats. It started as an FFA project for my daughter. Um, and then the goats needed a herd guardian and llamas are used as herd guardians because they're naturally aggressive toward canines. And we do have some predation from uh, coyotes here. So um, to put my mind at ease as much as anything else, we looked around for a llama and this llama was looking for a new home and he happened to come with an alpaca. <laughs> so we got two and um, they're great. They're great. They all have to be sheared. That's a bit of a jaw chore. Do you make, make yourself sweaters out of their out of Not their quite there. I'm not, really, I'm not really a knitter or a crocheter, but um, I have been experimenting with felting. Ooh. The fleas, yeah, it's a pretty interesting um, art form. So you can do a lot with it. So, so felting. What? What? Felting. Making what? felt. Yeah. Oh, so out so, of the fleas. So you can make like holiday stockings, right? With the felt. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You can make a lot of different things. Yeah. Wow, that's neat. Yeah. That's a. I can only imagine a whole other topic of you know crafting. You know, like that's right. And this makes felt like the whole the whole behind the scenes documentary. Oh yeah. That would okay. Be, that would be fascinating. <laughs> so you also um you have been involved with horses for for a very long time you you're still involved with horses you have a pretty interesting story about an island can you tell us a little bit about you know some of those yeah, when i was uh, about 21 a friend of mine had uh had the contract to run a public riding stable in a county park and he decided to get out of that i had I had worked there for him and managed it for him for a while anyway. And so there were a couple of years left on the contract. And so it was a little bit at loose ends anyway. And I called a friend who also had a horse. And I was like, hey, let's buy this business. <laughs> so we did. Uh, and we did it for a couple of years. And it was pretty, pretty crazy. Um, renting horses to the public. It's, it's a whole nother world. I'm sure. And this was in... Um in in Long Island in at the East End in the Hamptons yeah. in the Hamptons which the Hamptons is legendary for its attraction of the rich and the famous coming yes, out for weekend yes. getaways from New York City Field hunted with oh yeah that was really cool um actually that first horse I had I used to field hunt her with the Smithtown hunt and um that was when Harry Dallaire of snowman fame was the huntsman of the Smithtown hunt and so if I have a claim to fame, I suppose that's it. Um, sort of rubbed elbows with him occasionally. That's wow. great. So you rode with Harry. I mean, you can, yeah. you can say that. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and he liked to keep a very steady, fast pace. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to learn how to, you know, I mean, fox hunting is crazy. You know, you never know what's going to literally cross your path and to be pretty much ready for anything. And 
jump jumps at a gallop, basically. It's, it's wild. It's exhilarating and amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more of like a slow paced, you know, Western pleasure kind of girl, like, you know, yeah. jumping hedges is the, <laughs> the one time I jumped with my childhood horse was in a, a 4-H fair. I was doing hunter hack and they put hay bales underneath the, the cross, the cross yeah. poles. <laughs> I went right over her head because she put her head down to eat right. the hay and I went flying Food. up. Yeah. Yep, that was, that was my brief um, history with jumping. <laughs> and, and you said... That's enough of that. I was like, well, I think my mom kind of said that's enough of that. Oh, she was yeah. panicked. And I was also like, eh, I'll just go slow. That, that's funny. So, Candice, you have written quite a few books. And what, what I love about talking with you is that, is that you, you write for the adult you write fiction for the adult horse lover, which, yes. which is great because there's a, there's a lot of YA mm -hmm. uh, books for horse lovers. But, you know, you and I both write for adults. Would you talk a little bit? about your books and tell us a little bit about, you know, um, about your series and why you chose to write for adults. My first book is, uh, sorry to turn away there for a second, but this is Raver. It's the horse caller book one and it's a fantasy. I just thought, you know, I still like to have adventures. I can't be the only grown woman who still likes to have adventures. You know, it's not just for the young. Um, so the main character in that is actually almost 50 years old. That's great. And Raver has horses in it as well? Oh, yes. Yes. The, the main character is a woman of this world who is taken with a horse through a portal to another world. Um, but they believe her to be their horse caller who can find and return the lost horses and return them to greatness. A large part of the story, of course, is kind of what... Um, I mentioned in my bio about coming to believe in yourself and the power of that. You just had knee surgery and, and your conversation about, about the, the book that you just held up, really in, in talking about how you have to find the power in yourself to, you know, to heal and live in this world. Um, you've kind of experienced some of that with your, your own knee surgery, which, which has given you a lot of time to catch up on reading your horse books, right? Yes. But, but you were just sharing with me before we launched into the interview about how you really took care of yourself prior to your surgery and are actually having a really wonderful recovery. And, and I think you're edging towards getting back in the saddle. Can you talk a little bit, because I think this is really powerful, um, about how you, you took on your own healing um, to get through the surgery. It's important to continue moving forward, no matter what, if you can. And um, even after injuring it, which was a horse-related accident um, and healing from that uh, and doing all the physical therapy for that. Um, you know, I refused to let it slow me down to the extent possible. I had a brace I could wear, you know, when I walked if I needed to and um, would just do yoga and stretch and stay as strong as I could. And as soon as I decided, yes, this was the time finally to get the knee replaced, I really worked even harder to um, you know, simple things like drink plenty of water, <laughs> which I usually do anyway, but, um, and, and be as stretched and in as good a shape as I could be going into the surgery. And I think it's making a, a big difference in my, the speed of my recovery. That's wonderful. So taking care of your health and is so very important and, you know, ownership of, of healing in your own physical well-being and mind, yeah. body, and soul is, is there's a lot we can more we can do I think than we realize uh, mm -hmm. for ourselves and 
I basically just take the mindset that um, I can do and accomplish anything uh, that I put my mind to. And I, I truly believe that. And so I believed that I was going to recover from the surgery quickly. And so far, so good. Wonderful. Well, you know, I said, I said a little prayer for you when you were going into surgery. I knew that 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 was coming and I'm, I'm so glad to hear that your recovery is going well. And thank you for being here on the show today because you know, the surgery just, just happened not that long ago. So got my leg propped up. It's it's so good. (laughs) Well, you can't see that part, but that's perfect. Um, Speaking of being able to do anything that you set your mind to, uh, I wanted to talk about book three of your dream horse mystery series it just won the top award for equine novel at the american horse publications equine media award so oh. i i you know that that's that's wonderful and such a prestigious award can you um tell us a little bit about how winning that award made you feel and um hold up that book cover again which i'll also link to in the show notes so people can see it yep this is uh, Wrong Lead, which is book three in the uh, Dream Horse Mystery series. And um, I found out about the American Horse Publications, I think, because of you. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think so, because I was researching. Um, I know we'll talk about the box set more later, but I was researching this idea of putting together a box set of other adult equine authors. And I came across you and your book. I had never heard of it. And I thought, wow, what a great organization. I didn't even know it was out there. Um, Saw they had a contest. Found this out about three days before the deadline to enter the contest. But this book was published in 2018. So it fit the, you know, the criteria for entry. And I just, I joined and I sent the book in and went to the conference, which was a fabulous, fabulous experience uh, in so many ways. It's hard to even, I, I think I would have been happy if I hadn't won, but of course that was just icing on the cake. Um, but to be recognized by a group of um, equine, mostly authors and photographers, uh, it, it, it was big. Oh, and and congratulations. I mean, that's such an honor. I had such a great time spending time with you at the American Horse Publications. I think that's so fun. That's the beauty of it too. You you get to meet these people that you have, you know, basically online relationships with and you're able to to get together and talk. And and we had a great um, equine author meetup where we where we discussed, you know, what's working for people and and tossed around ideas. And and um, it's a great organization. And I'm I'm so I'm so glad that you're a part of it and I'm so happy that you won this prestigious award. I love the little sticker that you had on the front of the book. Did they send that to you or did you have that made? That's- no, I had it made. It's perfect. I love it. Um, and, and I think uh, listeners would be interested in knowing a little bit more about the Dream Horse Mystery Series. Can you kind of give us a, you know, a log line or a, a, a brief summary of, of what that series is about? I know there's whipped cream involved. Uh, yeah, that's right, there is. Um, well, it's, um, it's about a down-on-her-luck jumper rider whose uh, parents abandoned her when she was a baby, or so she's been told. And uh, she has a lot of anger issues because of that. And she uses the whipped cream straight from the can to sort of <laughs> manage her stress and so on. Um, she's just a really fun character. Her name is Viola Parker. 
and she finds out that her parents actually set up a trust fund for her, but to get it, she has to keep a job for one full year by the time she's 30. So she's gone from job to job because she's got strong opinions about horses and how they should be ridden and treated. And she often, that puts her in conflict. She rides for others, you know, their horses and, you know, jumpers and they want winners and, you know, not every horse is ready always to do what the owners want them to do. And that, that put her in conflict with them. So she often lost jobs or quit. So um, she ends up in Missouri on a horse farm with a job that um, she has to keep for one year. And um, within a couple of days of her arriving, a dead body shows up. So it becomes a whole nother thing, you know, to try to keep this job and stay alive and solve the murder. And there's a horse that she used to ride who died actually while she was riding him. His name is Wastrel and he is the dream horse. And he starts coming to her in her dreams and bringing her very cryptic clues. She doesn't even understand that they're clues in the beginning. Um, but even so, it's very hard to decipher what his meaning is. Um, but somehow it all comes together to help her solve the mysteries and learn more about herself and become a, a better and stronger person and heal some of her history um, throughout, you know, the course of the whole three books in the series. So um, it's a very satisfying uh, series to write. So is it complete or do you have yeah. it is complete. is complete. It is complete in the three books. Um, but people ask me all the time, when is there going to be another dream horse mystery? Um, Raver, the first book I showed uh, starts a series that I'd like to finish. I have another book that actually is a YA uh, that starts a series that I'd like to. Finish. <laughs> so I kind of would like to finish some of the other things I've started before I go back to it. Mm -hmm. But chances are I will um, write more dream horse mysteries in the, in the, in the future, because I just, you know what it's like after you write characters in several books, you really kind of fall in love with them, all of them. Absolutely. And, and they're still in your head. <laughs> they will you know, <laughs> talking to you like, hey, I've got more to say, you know, mm -hmm. there's more to my story or whatever. And it's hard to ignore that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's uh, one of the very best parts of being an author is that yes. like, I feel like I kind of have sometimes this out of body experience when I'm when I'm writing my books. It's like, the characters are, are telling me what to say. It's like, I'm like, I'm not even there. It's like, I feel like I'm just flowing out and it's coming out of me from, I don't even know where. Do you have that experience too? I, I absolutely have that experience. And I'm so glad to hear I'm not the only one. I mean, I have talked to other authors about this, but I tell people who aren't authors all the time and they give me the look, you know, um, that looks like you're crazy. Uh, because yeah, I'll say, you know, I, I started this scene or this chapter with an idea of where it was going to go and the characters just took it someplace else. They had their own idea of how this conversation was going to go, what was really at stake. They reveal things in dialogue or sometimes inner dialogue that I didn't even know about them. Mm -hmm. I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, it does feel like an out-of-body experience. That's a great way to uh, describe it. It is. And, it, you know, I really, I believe that's like, you know, you talked about believing in energy and good energy and that, you know, mm -hmm. the universe kind of provides. I feel like um, Stephen Pressfield is, a, is, an, is an author who also writes about being an author. And, and he says it's the muse. You know, when you have those experiences, it's the muse speaking through you, you know, it's not actually you. So it's, it's, a, it's a really fun experience. So Candace, how many books 
have you written? So I, I've heard you speak of several, but like how many, how many books have you given? How many um, book babies do you have? I have five novels and I also have two novellas that are only available as ebook right now until I finish that series. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll collect them into uh, and make them available as a paperback also. That's great. And, and those, those novellas, the Witting Women novellas, they, they touch even more on this mystical sort of the things that we don't understand that sometimes happen, the connection between us and the universe or whatever that energy is that's out there. Um, yeah, they're really fun to write too. That's great. So what, you know, this is, this is such a fascinating conversation. So what excites you about writing kind of about the universe and that mis mystical mystery space and then and then how do horses play into that because they're very prominent in your books too so like what excites you about writing in that realm you know it just sort of comes naturally to me because i think because i have a huge curiosity about that and i've had my own i think we've all had experiences of sort of supernatural we don't always realize that's what it is you know those strange coincidences that happen sometimes and so on and that we we write off to coincidence you know and seem kind of strange and then we just go on with our lives but i i stop and pause and i'm like wait a second mm -hmm. what just happened here you know and um my brain goes into writer mode and it's like well what if this you know and before i know it another new story and characters are blooming in my brain so, um, so I just love that. I just explore, I love exploring, um, that huge unknown, uh, mm -hmm. that's out there, um, that I think we can connect with, um, and maybe it's through dreams, like in the dream horse mystery, um, mysteries, um, and sometimes it's through our connection with animals. I feel that very strongly, you know? Um, that they have a connection with a more spiritual side of life, maybe that we've sort of lost and they haven't lost it because they haven't built a huge society that sort of beats it out of them. Mm -hmm. um, and so they live in that moment all the time. Um, and I think that the more time we spend with them, uh, the, the better chance we have of sort of strengthening that connection for ourselves. I love that. That is so beautiful. And, and I think so true. I think uh, being for me, being around animals and horses, it, it, it really slows me down um, yes. and, and gives me an opportunity to like look around and be like, oh, wow, it's really beautiful here. And this horse is beautiful. And, you know, just slow down, Mon, right? You know, it's like yeah. when I was in Jamaica, um, my, this is a kind of a strange story, but I was in Jamaica with my husband and, you know, we were getting married and I, you know, we had just gotten there and I was like all like wound up and, you know, I was trying to deal with this lawn chair and it was like, you know, not folding out and it was getting stuck on these rocks and I was like all flustered and, and, uh, this man walked by and he goes, slow down, man. And he, and it's like, uh, roll with it. And I was like, oh my goodness. You know, it's like, we create so much anxiety for ourselves and, yes. and being around the animals, the horses in particular really helps me slow down because I can get like going really fast and you mm -hmm. were just speaking to that. So that's, that's really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you're obviously a writer and you've got a lot of like cool things running around in your head. You've got starts to series. You've got a very successful series in the dream horse mystery series. Uh, so you're up to a lot of things. So what are you curious about right now? I've heard a little rumor or a little, a little 
whisper that you might be curious about something. Would you, would you talk to us a little bit about what that is? Um, are you hinting at the box set I mentioned? Earlier? I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, um, I would really like to put together um, a box set of the first books in series of, a, of a, all different authors of a equine adult fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think there's a huge opportunity there uh, for cross-promotion and for readers discovering, you know, through an author they know, discovering all these other authors they didn't know. And um, that's, that's good for everybody. It's good for the authors involved, and it's really good for the readers. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I think, what I loved about you when we connected at the American Horse Publications Conference is that, um, you know, when I asked you in the, in the interview questions that you responded back, what are you curious about? And you were, you were, you're curious about how authors, which I'm really stand behind is like how authors can unite and support each other. And this box set is a testament to that. And uh, what, what do you think are some other ways that authors, you know, can unite and support each other better. Um, you know, I'm really interested in, in bringing a spotlight on horse books and, bring, and lifting up the community and, and getting us all in a conversation where we're working together and supporting each other. Because like you just said, when you were talking about the box set, someone who loves my books will love your books, will love somebody else's books because they love horses. You know, we have that common thread. So would, would you talk a little bit about how you would like to see authors work together or what you think are opportunities for authors to, to partner up to support each other? Yeah, I think that uh, when we I flagged you down at the uh, conference, the American Horse Publications Conference, and we started talking. One of the first things I said was, hey, I really want to have a serious conversation with you about cross-promotional opportunities. And mm-hmm. I think that's a huge piece that's missing. It can be hard to network and find like-minded authors, and it can be intimidating to approach other authors. But um, I really think there's a huge opportunity um, for authors to work together more and team up to, like you said, raise up the whole community, unite, support each other um, in many different, many different ways. Yeah. And uh, this not is like, look at other authors as competition so much as uh, we're on the same team absolutely. and we're all working for the same goal. And that's mm-hmm. to delight our readers. Um, and we're all different. We could all write we could all start with the same prompt and we would all write a completely different story. So yes, what your readers will like my books and vice versa, but it doesn't mean they're the same at all. Yes. Mm -hmm. They have horses running through them as a common thread. And of course, human relationships with each other as well as horses, but, um, but they're, they are still each uh, a unique story that can Mm -hmm. be enjoyed. And, you know, and, and what's so interesting about this too is, you know, it's like, I love a good horse book and I know, you know, like I'll binge read like a book, I'll read it in a day and then I'll, mm-hmm. then I'll binge read the whole series and I'll be like, oh, now what do I do? You know, so it's like, so it's That's right. Right. So that, that sort of reader or me as a reader, you know, I'm constantly looking for, you know, what's the next book I can jump into and read really fast and, and get through it that, you know, as horses as a focal point in addition to the lessons that you learn by following the, the leading characters. So, um, so I think it's, it's great to put a network out there so we can all, you know, share. And I think teaming up on box sets and newsletters and uh, different promotional opportunities, I think is really going to unite this community. And I can't wait to dive a little deeper into that with you offline and, you know, come up with some more ideas, which, which we're enjoying doing mm-hmm. <laughs> already. Yep. 
so have you been a part of a box set before? Like, how did that work? What did that look like? What, what, what was the outcome? Did, would you do it, you know, obviously do it again. It was successful enough that you're interested in doing it again. So would you talk more about um, what it's like being a part of a box set with other authors? Yes, I was invited into a couple of box sets in the past, and um, it was it was such a positive experience. Um, not only the opportunity to meet these other authors um, and read their works, because you know one was called Must Love Pets, so all the books had a pet or animal of some kind as a very you know big part, as like its own character or a big part of the story. Um, and it was so successful that we actually put together a Must Love Pets two collection. They're usually put out for a limited time um, because nobody wants to tie up. Usually nobody wants to tie up one of their books, you know, for too long as part of something like that. But, um, you know, everybody does their part to promote it and advertise it. And um, they can be very, very, very successful. I haven't uh, put one together myself yet, but this one I'm talking about, um, I feel pretty confident that um, can be pulled together really successfully. Mm, that's exciting. I mean, uh, you know, a, a box set full of first in series around equestrian fiction for adults. It's like, woohoo, that, that like totally How could you go my, wrong? Yeah, that makes my spurs jingle. So I'm, but I imagine there's um, legal agreements that go into being a part of a, a box set is how does that work what does that look like can you sure everybody everybody signs a contract you know as far as uh which title they're going to put in and uh the contract states you know for how long if if there is an end date that's stated and then of course how the royalties will be collected and distributed so typically one person uh, there are services that do this but in my experience the person who organizes it um, also uploads it to their account. All the authors are listed, of course, but then the royalties come into that person's account and they're responsible for splitting them up monthly and distributing them via PayPal or whatever works. And also each author, usually there's a buy-in. So each author throws in, could be $100 or more uh, toward the book cover design, the interior layout, and any ads that could be bought and stacked around, uh, particularly around release day. Uh, to really try to boost um, the initial sales and maybe get on some lists uh, as part of that. Very cool. And and the kind of box set that you're talking about too is uh, digital only or ebook. Oh, ab absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Just mm -hmm. I just wanted to be clear there because there would be a whole lot more cost and, and effort that would go into having a physical. Oh, yeah. And I don't even know. They would be, I mean, once you pull in eight, ten books, that's too long, certainly. <laughs> a monster. Yeah, I don't even know how you would physically do that with print, but yeah. Yeah, I think uh, KDP print has a limit of uh, 800 Eight, pages, and if something. it's longer than that, yeah, yeah. You, can't, you can't do it physically. Depending on which paper you choose, and yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even, even collecting my series into one volume, uh, I had to play around with the layout and the fonts and so on to fit it within that limit. Mm -hmm. And then did you, so what were some of the other successes or positives that came out of being part of this box set? I mean, obviously you saw some royalties from being a part of this, but I imagine there is sort of a, like a, a upstream of sales of your books or connections Absolutely. that you're making. Would you talk a little bit about about that. Sure. I mean, my the books that I had in each of these collections were the first in a series. And so, um, you know, it definitely leads to people buying 
subsequent books in the series. And um, I've remained friends with all of the authors that I was in the series with. And so, for instance, one of them just invited me into, um, she's doing a Halloween sort of a, a, a author crawl, for lack of a better uh, word, where, you know, they're putting together this giant list of authors that readers can go from one blog to the other, to the other, to the other, you know, they're all connected. Um, um, I guess it's going on Halloween because it's, it's, it's called the Halloween Spooktacular or something like that. Um, but That's but any fun. type of book is, is welcome. Yeah. And so, you know, I've been invited into newsletter swaps and all sorts of um, other opportunities that I never would have had uh, had I not uh, networked with these authors as part of the box sets. So. That's great. And then it, uh, I imagine it also boosted your, your social media following and your newsletter signups as well. Yep. Yep. All those things. That's yeah. great. So it's just like an extra channel and extra avenue. I mean, you know, while you're part of these boxes, you, you still leave your standalone books yes. up in for sale. So you're still, you still have that channel. This is just like a secondary channel, another stream of income to, and again, and any, you know, if, if you're, if you were promoting the box set, your readers would see it and say, well, I've read In the Rains or whatever title you might have in it, mm -hmm. you know, but um, I really like Carly and her books. And so I'm sure I'll like all these other books and, and they buy it and they read the other books. And again, that leads to purchases of all these other authors uh, titles as well. It's just, it's good for everybody. Oh, I agree. And, and it's a great way to support each other and, and bring value to people that like to read about horses, yeah. you know, yeah. so, and, and then networking, uh, well, and promoting across everyone's um, channels and right. different strategies that they use for marketing uh, really makes a lot of sense. Yep. That being said, um, do you have any particular advice on how authors can market their books? Is there any one thing that really works for you or what is your recommendation? Well, um, I've tried a lot of different things over the years. Um, there's no question that building a newsletter email list is still a very powerful tool because those are the people who are going to buy your books when you have a new one come out and so on. And you can build that through book funnel and um, prolific works, places like that. Um, I have found them not to be ideal, although people will sign up. They often will also unsubscribe like the next time they get the newsletter you know they're just signing up to get the freebie or whatever but but you will um you will gain readers that way um you just have to be prepared for those the ones that come in and leave really quickly um i don't think facebook parties are as big as they used to be but some of my greatest fans i've definitely gained through participating in other authors release parties and things like that um you know you pop in for an hour and you throw in a couple blurbs and you answer people's questions, just interact in general, you know, and um, you give away a copy of your book. And um, I've never been afraid to ship my print books overseas. Some authors don't like to do that. The shipping can be terrible, but um, I'm uh, a woman became a fan through one of these events. I, she won my book. I sent it to her. She lives in England. She started my street team for me. Oh, that's lovely. So you have a street team in England. That's exciting. It's, well, it's on the internet. You know what I mean? Okay. It's on Facebook. So it's got people in it from 
from England, from the Philippines, from the U.S., you know, from all over. This reader in the Philippines, um, it's hard for her to get her hands on print books, so she really, really appreciated it when I sent her my books, and um, she set up um, Facebook pages for all my books or all my series, you know, just completely unasked. She just enjoyed them and wanted to do what she could do. It's amazing how generous people are with their time. It's absolutely remarkable, but I feel like part of how that happens is that you you get out there and you be personal and you actually talk to people and um, i i had a a fan one time comment on my blog and i emailed her back or she maybe she emailed me i can't remember it doesn't matter and she was like astounded she said you're the only author who has ever responded I had the exact, that was my exact reaction. I'm sorry, my jaw just dropped. <laughs> yes, literally. I was like, what are people doing? I don't care how busy you are. If a fan takes the time yeah. to reach out to you personally to say how much they loved your book, you respond to that Absolutely. and you write them back. You know? we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be anything without our readers. Exactly, exactly. So, um that was that was a really valuable lesson. I mean, it's it's how I would always respond anyway. But to mm -hmm. to have her tell me that, I I was I was just really surprised and kind of saddened in a way to hear that. Um, and I have no idea who else she might have reached out to who didn't respond. But you know, like I said, you just you have to be a real person. Mm -hmm. That kind of, that breaks my heart too. And yeah. and that's what I really like about you so much is it is you're about authors supporting each other, but you're also, you really stand for, and I stand for this too, taking really good care of your readers, you know, and in and, and, and doing that little extra bit, um, you know, I think it's so important because, um, you know, the creative outlet is for us, right? But then when we release these little book babies out into the world, it's for others, you know, and right. if someone has a, a positive reaction to that book that inspires them to reach out and tell you how much they love the book. I mean, it's, I think it's the responsible thing to do to respond and, and, and have a relationship with that person because that's what everything is about is relationship, right? Yeah. I mean, one time I, I've often thought, I wish you could, I mean, I know you can respond to reviews on Amazon, but you know, we're always cautioned against that, whether That's they're right. good or they're always there, whether they're good or bad. Mm -hmm. I, I really do wish I could find out who these people are sometimes who re, re, write these beautiful reviews um, just to say thank you. Mm -hmm. And one time I took uh, a five-star review I had gotten on, I don't remember which book, it was one of the Dream Horse Mysteries and uh, posted it, you know, made like a little graphic and you know, on my, on my Facebook page and just said, I'm always so thankful when someone takes the time to write a review. Here's a recent one I got that just really touched me or whatever. Well, little did I know this person had liked my Facebook author page also, and was a true fan. And she was like, I wrote that. And she was so excited that I like featured her, her review. And, and then I was able to thank her, you know, personally for that, because Aww. I just, I don't think you can ever show enough appreciation for the people who take the time to comment, even if it's not a five-star review. It's still, uh, you know, everybody's very busy. Mm -hmm. Very busy. Yeah, and you know, speaking of reviews, I, you know, I wanted to ask you: Do you do anything special to to get reviews? And then, you know, what it what you know, we talked a little bit about reviews, but what's your general? How do you feel about reviews? Like. Obviously, good reviews are so important, or reviews are so important to authors in general because it 
it helps a lot of the platforms share a book with people that have read like books and, and, and right. reviews, you know, Amazon won't often show your book unless it has a certain amount of reviews. So reviews really help books come up in search and other people find them. So we're, we're honored when people leave reviews, but do you, going back to the question, do you do anything special to get reviews? And then what, what is your feeling? How do you feel about, you know, bad reviews? Like what, what are your thoughts? Well, I have to admit, it felt like I'd been stabbed in the heart the first time I got a one-star review. Um, but at the same time, I was like, well, this kind of almost makes my book feel more legit. You know, I mean, you go out to any big popular book out there and they've got reviews all over the place. You know, you literally can't please everyone. Um, so I've learned to, to live with that. You, you know, my characters, my story, whatever, they're not, not for everyone. And I, I really truly feel if, they, if you've written something that everyone loves, I'm not I'm not sure you're doing it right. That's <laughs> my opinion. Um, but no, I don't do any, I don't do like review swaps or anything that feels, uh, it feels awkward to me because as much as I would love for someone to read my book and write a review in exchange for, you know, I've been burned too many times where then the book I've read, I, didn't feel like I could really give it a really good review necessarily. And it mm -hmm. makes me feel really makes me cringe. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I just don't ask, I don't ask anyone to do that. Mm -hmm. And you know, th that how I feel is if I, if I don't care for a book, like I'm, I don't, I'm not into being a negative person. I, I'm like a optimist and right. positive person. So if, if I don't care for a book, I just don't, I just don't review it. Um, yeah. You know, so, but, but, but like you said, you know, um, Harry, you know, the Harry Potter books, Stephen King, uh, the Twilight series, all these massively 50 shades of gray got destroyed in the reviews. You know, it's like these wildly successful popular authors also have to deal with sometimes negative reviews. And, and that's the thing about being a creative, you know, it's like you put something into the world and you open yourself up to people, for people to fall in love with it or for people to, you know, have it not be for them. And, and you just got to keep going and not let things deter you. And I, I totally hear you when you said, um, you know, your first negative review was like a stab in the heart. It does, it, it does hurt. Um, but then again, you know, you've said to elicit a response from someone one way or the other, whether they loved it or, or hated it means that you did write something that, that, that react that people had a reaction to right so there's there's something to be said for that right i do believe if you evoke a strong emotional response that's part of doing it right um mm -hmm. it, it might not be a positive response but i mean i i remember one time when i first joined this critique group um a couple of members got into a, a huge argument about a point of dialogue in one of my chapters and i was just like wow, this is so cool. Like, like they care, they, they care passionately about this, you know? I mean, there were other authors, obviously, but um, it raised strong feelings in these people. And I thought, this is a good sign, mm -hmm. you know, it's a really good sign. So yeah, um, that's, that's where I kind of developed that idea from. That's, that's great. And, and, and so you just mentioned a critique group. Is that something that you would recommend to authors or aspiring authors to get involved with? I've heard sometimes they can be a little brutal um, and competitive, but what, you know, what's your, what's your take on, on that sort of thing? 
I have heard about critique groups like that, and I, it's just really, like you said earlier, absolutely breaks my heart um, to hear authors tearing other authors down. Sure, not everybody's at the same level, and, but everybody has to start somewhere. No one started writing everything perfectly mm-hmm. right out of the gate, you know. Um, but if you can find a good one, I, I mean, I, I value mine beyond anything almost. And the nights that we meet are sacred and have been for years. And um, a friend of mine and I actually run the one that I am in um, over, over the years. We just kind of developed our own group. Um, and we're very careful about who we invite to join. We keep the group small. We don't let people just sort of walk in off the street. Um, and because it is a very, um, it's a, we've developed trust over the years uh, and all writing is personal. I don't care if it's a cover letter, a query letter, a synopsis, a fiction, nonfiction, children's, any kind of writing. Uh, it's still personal. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it came from inside of you. Um, and so that needs to be treated with respect and kindness no matter what. And mm-hmm. even if it's poorly written or just could be better in some ways, um, it still needs, that needs to be handled sensitively. Um, and so we've developed this environment where we feel, and we're very close, you know, we've been together, a lot of us for a number of years. And, um, even though the only time we come together mostly is when we meet for critique, um, that has become such a almost intimate experience uh, because again, you share, again, even if it's fiction, you know, you write about things that come from your heart. Mm -hmm. And um, so people get to know parts of you maybe that no one else really does. And um, anyway, so absolutely love mine. Absolutely strongly encourage finding one if you can find a good one, if not start your own um, where the people are involved are, um, it's not about their egos. You know, they're not there just to get compliments and be told how great they are or they're writing anyway. It's not about them. It's about the writing. Um, and, and who are also all, you know, attending conferences or reading books or something to improve themselves and their writing all the time so that they bring something to the table that will help you get better too. Um, you know, that's really important. So if it's just a social gathering of writers who don't really seriously uh, actually get into the critique part of it, it's, it's not helpful either. And that's right. And then, so how, how does it look? So do, do you all get together like once a month in person um, and then communicate through a group or something throughout, like how, how, how did your group work? Like how so the way you, our group, how, the way yeah. our group works um, right now, we're meeting every two weeks. We were meeting weekly for a long time, but it was just, it had gotten hard for everyone to be there every week. And if you don't have enough people there all the time, it starts to, it gets harder to get good feedback. <clears throat> so um, right now we meet every two weeks. We don't read anything in between. We don't do homework. Everyone's very busy. So uh, we bring our pages to the meeting, you know, within a reasonable limit, five to 10 pages, something Mm -hmm. like that. We bring copies for everyone who will be there. We communicate with each other during the week. So we know who's, you know, how many people are going to be there, how many copies to bring. So you pass out your copies, read it. And then you can, we write on the copies that were given, but then we also go around the table always starting to the right of the reader. So everyone gets a turn to say something and everyone 
comments verbally, um, and then you're done. Wow, that's, that's and it's it works really well. Yeah, and do you meet at someone's house or a restaurant? No, or? we meet at a we we're meeting right now at a um, it's actually a senior center. We belong to an arts council, mm -hmm. and they we pay a very modest fee to them yearly and. Um, Basically, they provided the space for us that wasn't being used in the evenings anyway. And so we just go in there for a couple of hours and leave it neat and tidy when we leave. And that's great to get that sort of feedback. I mean, that it's sort of like having a, a beta reader, you know, an advanced reader yes. while you're actually writing the book. Um, yes. so I can only imagine that really strengthens what, what you're doing rather than. I find it. In incredibly valuable. Um, some people don't like to bring anything until they've finished that first draft. Mm -hmm. I, um, I bring it chapter by chapter as I'm writing, when I'm writing a book, and then sort of edit backwards and forwards, sort mm -hmm. of, you know, based on some of that feedback and um, incorporate it. So by the time I'm done with my first draft, I'm really, I'm really almost done with the book because I've yeah. been editing it all along. It's just my style, but, and I write linearly from beginning to end. I don't write future scenes until I've written what leads up to it. I know some people hop around. Whatever works for you yeah. is what works. You know what I mean? To me, there's, there's really no right way. I'm more of a pantster than a plotter. Mm -hmm. uh, the one time I tried really plotting, I completely shot myself in the foot. It was a terrible experience <laughs> to, the point, to the point where one of my critique members finally one night said, are you enjoying writing this? Because uh -huh. it doesn't feel like it. Oh, wow. And that, big. yes, but that's what you want. You want that honesty. It wasn't an unkind thing to say. She could just tell from the writing that I, I was like working too hard or something hmm. because I, I had plotted it out and felt like I had to stick, you know, to that plot. Whereas my style is more kind of like what we were talking about earlier when you have that out of body experience. Hmm. I'm, I've learned to trust that and just go with that flow and see where it takes me. And I wasn't allowing that to happen, that natural sort of organic way that the story usually gets written for me. And um, it, showed. it showed. Wow. That, so, you know, and I totally agree with that. You have to stick with what like works for you. And, and so I don't know, I would probably have to come to your, to your group uh, with my full first draft because I, jump all over the place. It's like wherever the character wants me to go is where I guess like, like often I'll write the end in the beginning and then I'll wow. go like all over inside of it. I don't know why that's just sort of how it is. And uh, I wanted to ask you another question too, for maybe new authors that may be listening or aspiring authors, or perhaps just, you know, people that love horse books that are listening. Can you explain what a pantser and a plotter is because when I first heard those terms, I was like, what the heck is that? Like, can you yeah. explain what those are? Yeah. Well, literally a pantster is someone who writes by the seat of their pants. They just <laughs> sort of, they sit down with that initial idea, you know, or a character talking in their head and, um, and sort of see where it takes them. Uh -huh. You know, and, and I think, the, and then a plotter, of course, some people plot very deeply mm -hmm. chapter by chapter spreadsheets, you know, the the plot points you know and what needs to happen at all timing it all out um i say more power to you what like i said whatever works um <laughs> i'm it, so i think there's a spectrum between panster and plotter 
and I, so I'm not all the way at the far end of the panster spectrum. I tend to stop and sort of regroup as I'm going along and say, okay, here's what's happened so far. You know, I usually have ideas for scenes in the future. You know, is that still going to work? Or now because it's the characters have taken me in a different direction, mm -hmm. that op opens up the possibility of something completely different that I hadn't considered. How do I get to that point? You know, I have a general idea of where the story, and I often know exactly how it's going to end, but I, I don't always know exactly the route I'm going to, because there's more than one way, right? Right. Just like looking at a map. We could take the scenic route. We could take the direct <laughs> route, you know, some combination of the two. Um, so I don't always know what that's going to look like, but I usually, they almost always end exactly where I think they're going to. That is so cool. And thank, and thank you for explaining that to us. Because And, you know, and just, uh, just as a word of advice to people starting out, you know, don't be afraid to throw it away. Or find, you know, you just, in the beginning, you have to find out what works for you. And in the beginning, for me, the hardest part was trusting that mm. process. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much advice out there, mm -hmm. right? And usually talking, people are talking about what has worked for them. Mm -hmm. You know, when they say, well, you have to plot it out. You know, you have to do this. You'll be more successful. You'll write faster, you know, if you do it this way. Well, maybe, but maybe not, you know, if it's not really what works for you. So, so don't be afraid to experiment to write down those, to go down those crazy dark alleys that your characters are taking you down, you may hit a dead end. It's to me though, it's still not wasted. Mm -hmm. It's writing that is practice that you might use later. It's, it's, uh, you learn something from that. And I also, one of my personal things is the answer is always in the writing. I don't really believe in writer's block. I think that that's there's something else going on in someone else's life that may be impacting their writing, but the writing itself, just sit down. People don't give themselves permission to write crap. I always say, you know, just sit down and start writing, write anything, write your grocery list. It doesn't matter. Let it flow. You know, just let it, just let it happen. You know, don't put those rules on yourself mm -hmm. and um, something good will come out of that. Something that maybe you didn't know going in. So I'm a big believer in that. That is great advice. And I completely agree. It's like, it just puts your buns in the seat and write and you get, and you get better as you go. You know, it's like the, the more, you know, you, you do it once and you're like, wow, I can actually do this, you know? And it's like, I think, I'm not sure who said it. I, it was like Robert Patterson or something. No, that's the, that's the vampire from Twilight. That's the actor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got, I've got a romance on my there is James Patterson. James Patterson. Yes, excuse me. James Patterson. Okay. I, think, I think he said, you know, just sit down and write 200 words a day. And, you know, by the end of the month, you'll have like a thousand words. And then, you know, in a year or six months or a year or whatever, you'll have 50,000 words. 50,000 words is a novel. You know, yeah. and, and just, you just write, allow yourself time to write just a little bit every day and you get better and you practice and it's really building a routine, I yeah. think, you know, is of sitting down and, and giving yourself the room to write and not being afraid of it. Just being like, right. oh. Stephen King says the scariest moment is always just before you start. So right. just start, right? I find that's true. Do you, yes. do you feel that way too? I agree. And I also believe in stretching your creative muscles in different ways if you can. So if you really truly feel blocked, I don't, Again, I don't call it blocked, but I'll get to a point in the story where I'm like, just not sure how to get from this here to here to there. And um, I'll go for a walk or a ride. Mm -hmm. A ride is always mm -hmm. good. You know, and I let it sort of percolate in the back. You know, I don't try to force it. 
and I'll take a couple days break, you know, or I'll, you know, draw a picture or just some use, like I said, some other creative muscle. It's not that I can know how to draw or anything, or even I strongly believe in honestly trying to write poetry because mm. that sort of, it just triggers a different part of your brain. Um, and and then that will filter over into your other writing. I don't know how it works exactly. It's one of those mysteries that I don't understand, but um, but it can be very powerful. And and I mean, this is such a wealth of knowledge. I mean, just about writing in general. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how did you choose to publish your books? Uh, did you go the independent route? Or are you traditionally published? Would you talk a little bit about about that? I am indie published. Um, I tried going the traditional route because back when I actually first started writing, that really was the only option still. And so I, I achieved that goal of getting an agent, which sounds really cool, but this particular agent didn't really work that hard for me. I don't think she was really that interested in sort of helping me manage and build a career. It was like, she, she went through the motions, she submitted my manuscripts, but I don't think she was really trying to find the right home for them. I'm honestly not even sure she read them all the way through to really understand where they might fit. If you know what I mean, it's, oh, it's hard to know. That's too bad. And you're paying this person. Well, they only get paid if they sell it. Ah. So when they sell it, when you, when the publisher pays you, whether it's your, uh, you know, what do you call it when you get paid up front? Your advance. An advance. They get typically 15%. So the way it works actually is the publisher pays the agent. Mm. The agent takes their 15% and then you get paid by the agent. That's oh, I see. Usually okay. how the funds flow. So um, I didn't sell any of my manuscripts. I, we did get a lot of, I was at the time shopping both Raver and On the Buckle. Uh, got a lot of very positive rejections. <laughs> you can think <laughs> of them that way, you know, really positive feedback on the writing. Just, you know, not what we're looking for right now, or, you know, just bought something similar last week, you know, those, those kinds of things. Um, best of luck. So then over the, over time, online publishing was beginning to become a thing. And of course there's always smaller presses, but she wasn't interested in going that route because there's no way she would have made any money really mm. or very little money doing that. So mm -hmm. we just parted ways amicably um, because I was interested in looking into some other options. In the meantime, I had my daughter, and along with um, taking care of having all the horses here, the riding sort of just, you know, had to take a back seat for a while to being a mom, which was an incredible experience in, in and of itself that was completely unexpected for me. Um, not that having a child was unexpected, but I really didn't know going in that motherhood was going to be a thing that would um, touch me so deeply. Oh, wow. Um, Anyway, so I let writing just, it wasn't just the writing, it was that whole looking for agents, look, querying, you know, looking for editors, doing all that research. It's just, it's very time consuming and tiring. And Well, it's not um, like motherhood also is like sort of like being with the horses. It slowed you down. It got you present. It puts yeah. you in the now. You took that time to be, you know, with your yeah. child, yeah. Um, which, which is important. And, and those are growth opportunities too. And, and some things have to take the back burner when you're doing well, and it also, um, we had had some issues. And so by the time I had my daughter, I was a little bit older. So I was pretty sure I was only going to get one shot at this. So, mm -hmm. um, and I was old enough to appreciate how quickly time flies. And um, 
that I, I didn't want to miss anything. That's so, so that's what I focused on. But anyway, by the time I kind of circled back and started revisiting my manuscripts and um, the publishing world had changed dramatically um, and was beginning to become what it is now, which is a crazy wide open Wild West show, basically. <laughs> um, I think it's starting to calm down, but wow, it was really wild there for a while. But um, I decided to just to go ahead and indie publish, partly because I'm a bit of a control freak and I'm a little um, impatient. And so, for instance, I was working with another guy for a while who's great. He's a great editor. He, he thought he wanted to be an agent for a while. He, he didn't. But he offered to publish Raver out of his own small publishing house. And I just we worked together for a little while and he had some great feedback on the manuscript, but I felt like the manuscript was ready. I liked it the way it was. I already had a lot of feedback on it and worked on it really hard. And um, it's not that I'm not willing to take edits at all. That wasn't the case, but I was, I was just ready to put it out there and sort of see what happened. And um, he was just very slow to respond to emails. I mean, of course he was very busy too, but you know what it's like when mm -hmm. you're on the end where you're waiting for an answer about something. And I just thought, no, I'm not, I, I'm just going to do this myself. <laughs> so I'm not waiting on someone else to, to do whatever. And um, it's worked out really well. I've been very happy with it. So, but as you know, it's, um, you have to do all the jobs. You have to wear all the hats. So you have to take off your author hat and put on your formatting hat or, your marketing hat or whatever. And um, all of those other pieces take time away from writing. So mm -hmm. um, you have to be prepared for all of that. And it's not for everyone. At That's all. right. Yeah. It, it will, you know, and you have to be want you have to, you have to want to do the work to independently put a good product into the market. So you have to take the time to do your research. You have to take the time to make sure you're editing properly um, and putting it, you know, it's like, I, I like to say what, you know, it's like the Spider-Man thing with um, great power comes great responsibility, you know, independent publishing has given us so much power over our own creative endeavors, but it's up to us. It's, it's our responsibility to make sure we're putting the very best product we can into the world, which means working with editors, working with good book designers, getting your specs right, formatting correctly, uh, you know, doing, doing all the, all the things right. And there's a, ton of information out there on how to do that you know but you are starting a business and you, you have to think like a, a business person too like i personally like independent publishing because of what you said the, the creative control um owning all my intellectual property i mean i that's very important to me you know knowing how my book is going to look in the world when i put it out there but what i also like too is it's um I feel like learning new things keeps you young and there are perpetually new things to learn around independent publishing. There's new systems to implement. There's new um, revenue streams that you can open up. There's, you know, possibility around audiobooks and print books and hard hardbacks and ebooks. I mean, there's like so much possibility, but you know, you have to want, you can't be lazy, I guess is what you're saying. You have to like really dive in there and get your, not just your toe in, you have to put like your whole body whole in the water. <laughs> put your whole self in. <laughs> right. Would yes. you agree with that? I would agree completely. And it, it is hard. Um, but like you said, um, taking responsibility for all of that, um, it's, it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot mm -hmm. of work. Um, but you do want your book baby to be as beautiful as it can be and as good as it can be before you put it out there. And I think the ease of publishing has allowed a lot of 
um, books to get out that aren't as good as they could have been. Mm -hmm. um, people had just been a little more patient with that part of the process. Yeah. That's right. And which leads me into one of the other questions I wanted to ask you, is there any myth that you'd like to debunk around independent publishing? Um, is there anything that that's there for you that you'd like to talk about? Well, I think the myth that, um, well, I don't, I don't know if this really is a myth, but that, that, you, do, you know, you don't need an editor mm. or at least a proofreader, mm. you know, or um, unless you're a graphic artist that you can do your own cover, you know, um, there's just too many choices out there, too many shiny objects in a sense for readers that are really beautiful um, from the cover to the blurb to the writing itself um, to put something out that it basically just won't be able to compete is um, a little backwards. Mm -hmm. And talk, talk just a little bit more about the importance of editing. I think, I think that that's one place where um, independent publishing in the early days kind of got knocked because yeah. people were, were in such a rush and so excited. They were publishing their books without going through the, the process and in, in creating a team around releasing the very best product. And some books squeezed through that the editing was less than spectacular. So would you talk a little bit more about the importance of, of a good editor and, and kind of yeah. maybe what your process is like for your books? Well, it's like the critique group, you know, they're just going to see things that you can't see because you are too close to the work. Mm-hmm. We all have, you know, our word babies that we love and we don't want to kill them. But, um, you know, or we've written this long, beautiful, descriptive passage that is beautiful, <laughs> but not, it's not in the right place or it slows down the narrative at that point or the action or whatever. Or, you know, when you read it to yourself, it sounds okay, but the dialogue is really very unrealistic and stilted and you just can't hear that yourself. You need someone else, not your mother, <laughs> not your husband, who, um, or your wife, if you're a guy, um, unless they happen to be an editor, you mm -hmm. know, um, but even that is, that's a relationship that's fraught with, you know, for them to give you real good feedback is putting them in an awkward position, really, when you think about it. So, so you need either, like I said, critique partners or beta readers that you really trust who, um, because there's all different levels of editing is the thing. There's proofreading for just typos, but that's not editing. Mm -hmm. Editing is really looking at the, the book as a whole and whether the, you know, just for instance, the main character's arc makes sense or the main character is just consistent how you set them out to be in the beginning. Um, or that the pacing, it's pacing is part of it. Um, you know, sometimes people write things that are, interesting and funny but they just don't fit in the story or they don't make sense or whatever and and it makes sense to you i've often had a situation in critique where start to give someone feedback and they're like well it's because blah 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 blah, blah. and i'm like okay just stop you are not going to be there to explain <laughs> it to yeah. the reader when they're reading it so mm -hmm. if this doesn't make sense to me for whatever reason or our rule is sort of if three people say the same thing in critique, you need to kind of pay attention to that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, take it all with a grain of salt with what works within your story. But even getting to that point where you can sort of filter those sorts of comments is, it takes practice and experience. And 
a level of objectivity, you know, about your work that is hard to achieve. It's really hard. We've had people come to critique who said they were ready and couldn't wait to get feedback and didn't come back, even though we're incredibly kind, especially with beginners. Um, they really weren't ready to actual hear, actually hear honest feedback on their work that they thought was perfect and beautiful the way it came out of them, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I think uh, so that's editing, why editing is very important. Yeah, and I think that's also why finding an editor, uh, you know, that works for you it is good too, because not, you know, it's it's a different relationship, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, so like kind of my the way I work with my books is um, my husband. You know, you said don't use your husband, but I use my I husband did. as like my very first reader. Oh, so sure. he. He re, like I'll write a chapter, you know, like every week, and then we'll sit down over coffee on the weekend, and he'll read it back to me so I can hear it, and then he'll make comments like that didn't make sense, or and he'll catch like the early typos and things like that, and then I go that's kind of like motivation for me to write my chapters, and then when the 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 whole thing is done, I send it to my editor who I've had a relationship with. Um, you know, ever since in the, the first book in the series and the reins was written. And so, and so she's my editor and she's tough, but mm -hmm. she's funny and she's very good at catching inconsistencies and she mm -hmm. makes recommendations. And then, you know, she'll even tell me like this whole chapter annoyed me, take it out or rewrite it, you know? And like, yeah. so she, she really looks for, you know, all the structural things. She, she also catches, catches typos, but I think, you know, as I grew and as I got better with my writing, what I also realized is like, you know, there's my husband and there's my editor then, you know, there's like, you can't just go from there and then publish. Like I, that's what I figured out too. I had it edited several times by the same editor on In the Rains and still things got through. So with my future books, what I went into was editing, revising through with my editor, then having a copy editor, like right. to get through the final thing to look for, right. you know, any additional errors or inconsistencies. And then from there, I went to beta readers or advanced readers that I trusted, right, with copies of my books to, to, to give, to look for even more typos and different things that they catch, you know, right. maybe it's like five, five people I, you know, that I trust with advanced reading. And then I felt like I could go to, to publish. So it's like, there's right. a lot that goes into making sure you have the very best product out there. Like, you know, but it's all a learning experience too. It's like it my is. first early editions of In the Rain, sometimes I'm like, I can't believe those are in the world because everything's been fixed now, but you know, sometimes right. you just got to do it. And then, yeah. and then you, you get better as you go. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there's nothing worse than that feeling when you realize you've published something that has a typo or something. Oh, it's the worst. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but you know what you just described, not only can it be expensive because editors aren't cheap, mm -hmm. it's time consuming. Mm -hmm. And although earlier I said I'm impatient about certain types of like communication and stuff, I am not impatient when it comes to publishing my books because I really, you know, do want them to be as good as they can be. Um, in fact, I made so many mistakes on these books. It's crazy. Uh, when I first wrote On the Buckle, which is the first Dream Horse mystery, I really didn't write it intending it to be a series. I thought, oh, what the heck, I'll put book one on the cover. Well, that means you have to write book two. <laughs> and uh, it, it, early, early on, it had a BookBub ad, and it exploded. And all of a sudden, I felt really pressured to write book two, which is when I decided to plot, and because I thought that would help me write it faster. That was a total mistake. But... Um, 
in the future, I, with series, I don't intend to ever publish the first book until I have subsequent books written. Not only because then you can time out your publishing and people aren't waiting. Um, even if you're not doing rapid release per se, you still, you don't want to put one book out uh, in 2013 like I did with Raver and here it is 2019 and I don't have a second horse collar book out still. Mm. Um, you know, that's kind of not fair to readers. You make a contract in a way when you promise them that there's more to come and then more never comes, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's not really right. But, um, but also things would come up in subsequent books, but if the first or second book are already out there, you can't go back and fix that or set that up. You know, it's too late. You have to right. work with what you've already put out there. So um, I would encourage anyone planning to do a series to, to write most of it at least um, before ever publishing the first book because things are going to come up down the road that need to be incorporated toward the beginning. And I think that's a really interesting point that, that you made too about, um, you know, you put the first book out there and, and you hadn't really mapped where you were going with the other ones. I mean, it, you know, and then readers loved it because of the book bub, which I want to talk to you about in just a second. But that kind of puts um, some unnecessary pressure on you to create a story. And I, I find that writing under pressure doesn't, I don't create my very best work when I'm writing under pressure, which is something I also like about being an independent author. I say when I release, I say what my schedule looks like. I, you know, I don't have to do anything to pay anything back or make any money or like, and I find that my, I feel like my work is better because I'm not under pressure to make something happen by a deadline. Right. Um, that was really interesting to hear. So book bubs, I've heard book bubs are very, very challenging to get. How did they you are, get that? They are now, they are now, but this now. was quite, quite a number of years ago. Okay. Um, and I just, I just submitted it and they, took it. I submitted both Raver and On the Buckle. They only took On the Buckle. Mm -hmm. um, and that was with the original cover, which I did do myself. <laughs> do not <laughs> recommend. <laughs> but that was kind of when BookBub was first starting out. I don't know how long they'd been up and running by that time. And it was still very expensive, several mm -hmm. hundred dollars, even for a freebie uh, in that category. Um, but the response was amazing. But I actually have a PR company now that mm -hmm. helps me. And they've been submitting uh, my Dream Horse Mysteries uh, periodically with BookBub, and they haven't gotten picked up again. I'm like, I don't understand. They did them once before. Why wouldn't they do them again? But, you know, the big publishers use them now. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, you know, it's just harder to compete. So, it, but there's, there's a lot of other services like that out there, but I don't know of any that come close to the impact that BookBub can have. And I was going to say, for listeners, why do you think BookBub has this spectacular impact? Like, why is, you know, BookBub the ah, holy grail of book advertising? Like, like, why do you think that is? I don't know, except I don't know how they did it, but they have de just developed a huge, huge, like millions of subscribers. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what they did to, to do that, but um, they're just the biggest ones out there as far mm -hmm. as um, the number of readers that they have who subscribe to their daily newsletter of um, deals. And so they've become very discriminating in what they curate for their readership. Which is really interesting. I just did an interview with Ann Hunter. She writes the North Oak uh, series. And she actually was one of, uh, she just got a book bub recently um, within like 
within the summer and it skyrocketed her to number mm -hmm. one on a, a bunch oh, yeah. of different charts. And, yep. and, and she said what's unique about them is they really segment their huge following into very specific yes. lists that they build when you do these advertising campaigns. So they have, they have more categories and much narrower categories than they did when uh, in the big earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you for talking with us a little bit. That was a little off tangent. So, you know, we're getting down to our final questions and, and what I sort of have left for you is, would you share a little bit about what is the hardest thing about being an author for you? And then what's the very best thing about, about your career being an author? I guess the hardest thing is, um, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier, you know, as an indie published author, it's, it's doing all the parts. Sometimes I would just like to sit and write and not, not do any of the other parts. Um, and yet at the same time, as you said, you just have to get your butt in the chair. So being disciplined about writing all the time, I have a full-time job. Mm. So um, it's, it's challenging. And I'm not the only author by any means who also has a full-time job and a family and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get that reader who reaches out to you and says, I couldn't put it down. A recent review on, it was for the entire box set of Dream Horse Mysteries said, and it's on the UK site, I think it said, just make sure all your laundry's done before you pick <laughs> this book up because you are not getting anything done until you finish reading it. I was like, oh my gosh, that you you know, total music to your ears, right? I mean, Absolutely. you couldn't ask for better uh, feedback from a reader than I couldn't put it down. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's what we want. We want that um, experience for the readers, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I've always said, if I feel like, if I, when I'm writing sometimes when it's going well, and when I love it, is when I feel like I'm writing a book I can't put down. I mm -hmm. think about it all the time. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to get to the computer or any piece of paper, pencil, pen, whatever, and write more of it. That's when I'm in the flow and I know it's going really well. It's not always like that, but it can be. Um, and that's when it's, you know, it's just such joy. Um, mm -hmm. It's amazing. And I do feel like flow for me happens more often when I touch my story every day because it's always kind of there. I find right. that it's harder to get back into the, um, the rhythm when I've taken a, a break over an extended period of time. So, you know, like that flow experience happens for me when I'm uh, regularly engaging yes. with my book. Um, yep. Yeah, but life doesn't allow that all the time. So Not all the know. time. Yep. So you just have to bring yourself back, you know, yep. kind of get back into the rhythm and then it comes back and it's miraculous. It is a miraculous feeling when, when that does happen. So. And I did want to touch on something um, that you, you mentioned when you said that uh, your husband is your first reader and he reads it out loud. And mm -hmm. we tell people in critique all the time, and it's why we force everyone to read their work aloud when they come to critique. Read your work aloud to yourself. It is amazing how different it sounds than just reading it in your head. Mm -hmm. And also print it out and read it periodically. Because yes. I see things in print that I don't see on the screen. That is absolutely right. Mm -hmm. so those are just a couple other little pieces I would offer for people first starting out. Absolutely. This 
Candace, this has been such a wealth of knowledge, and I and I am so glad that we met each other at the American Horse Publications Conference in person, and I'm so glad we've started on this great author friendship journey together, and Candace and I are going to look at all sorts of great ways to bring our community together even more and partner up and support other, you know, horse book authors, and um, so we're coming to the end of our time, so I will link to all this information in the show notes, but would you share where people can find you and your books? Uh, well, I have a website. It's just CandiceCarabas.com. I have a Facebook author page. I'm on Pinterest and Goodreads. And of course, my books are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, iBooks, all those places. Raver and one of my novellas are available as audiobooks. Um, we're not in production right now. I kind of started down that road and then some things came up, but I'm working with an audio producer to get the Dream Horse Mysteries uh, made into audiobooks. So hopefully Very that'll cool. be coming in, in 2020. Lots of exciting things coming in 2020. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, and I sign up for my newsletter on my website. Um, and I do love, love, love hearing from readers. So do never, never be afraid to reach out. You know, authors are just people too. And we can't live on just chocolate and uh, red wine alone. <laughs> could go a long way like that. But it, it's really nice to hear from readers occasionally. Because I feel like, you know, my story isn't really real until someone else reads it. And so you can write all you want. But if nobody else ever reads it, I feel like it's, it's not, sort of not real. And then, you know. So it's nice to hear from the readers. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, and Candace, thank you so much for the gift of your time. And thank you for being a, a huge supporter of authors supporting each other, which I think is so important. And um, it was so great to have you on the show. And we'll do some more talking very soon. And have a great rest of your day, Candace. Thank you so much. It was so great to be here. I love talking about it, everything with you. And um, we'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. Have a fantastic day. Bye, Candace. You too. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle. <laughs>